0: Welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. you would never guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, My name is Daniel. Daniel Downey. I am your host. I am a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh. And I do a thing here in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights. I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about as I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you will laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about the reign of one of the most enigmatic of Scottish monarchs, certainly the most enigmatic of the Stuart monarchs, James I. Now nobody seems to be able to decide whether James I was absolutely brilliant or utter shite. It's a bit like listening to Jerry Cinnamon, you know? And James the he spent the uh, the first 18 years of his reign as a kind of prisoner come guest of the English. It's a very similar vibe that the Travelodge has going, you know, that kind of mix of prisoner and guest. And despite waiting 18 years to finally begin his personal rule, when James the 1st did eventually become king, when he did eventually gain control of the kingdom, he made a complete and utter bollocks of it, making James the first reign very, very similar to uh, Ali McCoy's reign at Rangers. Now, listen, if this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, all right? I'm not going to lie to you. It's mainly Scottish history mixed in with some jobby jokes and Tory bashing. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the first episode, start from the beginning? I don't really talk about anything topical on the podcast. Each podcast will give uh, a decent bit of uh, information for the one that follows it, a bit of background for the podcast that follows it. Uh, right, so here you go, folks. Without further ado, here is your podcast all about the reign of James the First, the first of seven Jameses who would rule in Scotland. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there. And I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy. James was captured by Norfolk pirates, which isn't just the name of the pantomime in Norwich this Christmas. You know what I mean? I, they actually did exist, Norfolk pirates. James was uh, he was captured by Norfolk pirates at the age of eleven while he was a train. While he was attempting, sorry, to escape to France from the rocky outpost of the Bass Rock on the in the Firth of Forth, he was picked up in a merchant ship that was sailing from Leith to France, which was then boarded by Norfolk pirates, which must have been quite exciting for an 11-year-old, you know, to spend time on an actual real-life pirate ship until he realised that the pirates were from Norfolk. It was like being on a boat full of Alan partridges, sailing the Audi 80 of the seas, you know. Anyway, James became king shortly after his capture, after the death of his father, Robert III. But with James imprisoned in England, the country was was run by James's uncle, Robert, the Duke of Albany. And Albany, he had feuded endlessly with James's father, and he had executive control of Robert III's kingdom for the majority of Robert III's reign. Albany was also responsible for the murder of James's older brother, David the duke of rossi and was very likely responsible for james's kidnapping as well he was running the place despite the fact that everyone knew he was a murderer it was a bit like he was a bit like the 15th century's carol baskin i suppose now James would spend 18 years in captivity in England during which time the country was run by Robert the Duke of Albany from 1406 to 1420 and then by Albany's son Murdoch, the second Duke of Albany from 1420 until James' release in 1424. Now Robert the Duke of Albany, he was an experienced politician and he ruled effectively between 1406 and 1420 as regent and governor. Albany, he ruled through a a general council of prominent nobles, conducting himself as first amongst equals. You know, it's a bit like when a middle class person shops at Lidl, if that helps. Now there's no evidence to suggest that Albany tried to engineer a similar fate for James as he had done David, but he didn't work particularly hard to secure James's release from prison. He worked a bit as hard as a Tory Brexit negotiator would try to secure a no-deal Brexit, you know, or try not to secure a no-deal Brexit, Brexit, I should say, a token effort at the best. Now, the English under Henry IV and then Henry V, they did all they could to undermine the Regency of Albany, accusing him of being a usurper, which was a tad rich, considering that they had Scotland's rightful king in their in their captivity. They wanted Albany gone after he renegotiated a renewal of the old alliance with France in 1407 and tried to, rid, tried to rid southern Scotland of the presence of the English who still held several southern Scottish castles. Albany successfully managed to recapture Jedburgh Castle from England. Now, when Albany died in 1420, his son Murdoch, the second Duke of Albany, became governor of Scotland. Murdoch had actually spent time in captivity with James in England after he was captured during a Scots raid into Northumberland in the early 15th century, but there was no love lost between the pair, however, and when James eventually assumed control of his kingdom, he took out his pent-up rage and frustrations regarding the Albany Stuarts out on Murdoch and his family having him and his eldest son Walter executed in 1425. The most significant event in the Duke of Albany's long regency was the Battle of Harlow, fought on the 24th of July, 1411. It was a ferocious battle fought between the Highland Gales and the English-speaking lowlands over the vacant Earldom of Ross, which also included Skye and Lewis. Essentially, it was a battle over who controlled northern Scotland. The Gales, they were led by Donald MacDonald, Lord of the Isles, as well as of the Golden Arches. And the Lowland Forces, they were commanded by Alexander Stewart, Earl of Mar, the eldest son of the famous Alexander the Wolf of Badenoch, James I's uncle. And since Norse control of the Isles had ended in 1266, the Lord of the Isles was a, a private fiefdom of the incredibly powerful clan Donald. And the Lordship of the Isles had long played an important part in in mainland politics. It was the Macdonald Chieftain Angus Og who had backed Robert Bruce and supported his successful campaign with his own personal catherines and galleys. As allies, the Lord of the Isles were incredibly powerful, but their power also meant that they were a threat to royal authority. From their base at Danivay Castle on Eile, the Lord of the Isles could muster an army of 10,000 drawn from the Western Isles and much of the Western Highlands. So, in the winter of 1411, Donald Macdonald held a gathering of his clansmen at Ardtonish Castle in the Sound of Mull, from which he selected his best 6,000 fighting men and sent the rest home. Macdonald, promised his men limitless plunder when they reached the undefended city of Aberdeen, which incidentally remains the way in which people are recruited into Aberdeen's oil and gas industry. Although it was a tad naive of Donald MacDonald to promise his men unlimited plunder when they made it to Aberdeen because everyone knows that any undefended plunder in Aberdeen is immediately snatched by the seagulls, you know? Like, if Madeleine McCann went missing in Aberdeen, everyone would just presume that she had been taken by one of the seagulls. You know what I mean? They're like flying fucking pit bulls. And even then, I'm not sure how you go about shading one League Cup amongst 6,000 men anyway. Either way, Donald MacDonald, he marched his army up the Great Glen, gathering support from other clans as he made his way. And they, uh, they burnt Inverness, which is no mean feat, you know, because it rains all the time in Inverness, keeping an open flame going for the length of time required to burn down an entire town. It was... Particularly impressive in that part of the world, I can tell you that, folks. Alexander Earl of Mar refused to be intimidated by the huge Highland force and gathered what forces he could from the Lairds in the northeast to stop their approach. The two sides met at Harlow, near Inveruri, on the 24th of July, 1411. There was no real strategy. The two sides merely charged at each other. It was a bit like an Edinburgh derby. It was like a, a test of individual valour. Whoever could fight the best. And although Marr had fewer men, they were armoured spearmen and experienced knights, whereas the Highlanders had no real protection. They were like, maw and paw, Brun, they didn't use protection. Despite this, they kept charging time and time again at Marr's forces. Now, there was no clear victor, but Marr had managed to halt the Highland advance despite heavy losses on both sides. The Battle of Harlow is remembered as Red Harlow, and the government hailed the halt as deliverance from the Highland hordes. Albany managed to manipulate the vacant earldom to his advantage, bestowing it to his son John, Earl of Buchan, a a bit like a a Tory MP negotiating an NHS private contract or a test and trace app. While still in captivity in England in the 1420s, James wrote the semi-autobiographical work James and the Giant Peach, um, which told the story of his childhood inside a giant peach some insects and how his parents were eaten by a rhinoceros. It's very, very entertaining. He also wrote The King's Queer, in which he uh, he describes his love for Lady Joan Beaufort, the granddaughter of John of Gaunt and cousin of Henry V. He, he catches sight of Joan from his tower room in Windsor Castle, where he pens his undying love for her. Now, some advice here. I would never present a woman you are watching from the window with a poem unless it's really, really good. And I mean really good. You know, like, my poem about my neighbour's fly-tipping was less than appreciated by her. I can promise you that, folks. The poem, uh, The King's Queer, it's, it's a mixture of Scots and Chaucerian English. It's dedicated to the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the the Canterbury Tales. Again, my neighbour gave zero fucks about any of this. Now, The King's Queer is a celebrated and significant piece of literature, but as impressive as The King's Queer is... James, I mean, he could never have managed something like a a cognitive test that involved him repeating the words person, woman, man, camera, TV in the correct order. I mean, that's just next level shit, that, you know. Now, the the romance between James and Joan would go beyond the page and blossom into a close and enduring marriage. And as well as being a talented writer and poet, James was athletic, studious, a keen horseman, archer, wrestler, a talented musician, a poet, everything you would expect to see on a Vladimir Putin propaganda film. But he was scarred by his childhood, his capture and the humiliation of his father and the murder of his brother. It would create a fear and bitterness in James that would continue into his reign when he eventually ascended to the throne. James's reign would be one that encouraged art and culture, but always with the sheen of distrust and paranoia fueled by power politics that had been the demise of his father and the brother and the ignominy of his flight and capture. James was fearful and bitter because of past death and humiliations. He was a bit like a, a Rangers fan in 2020. The question remained of when James should be released, when he should be made free. Henry IV had been willing to negotiate James's release but when he died in 1413 Henry V preferred to use the Scottish King as a diplomatic tool in his wars against the French. Henry V also liked the young prince and made James a commander of the English forces in France. In 1407, Albany had renewed the old alliance with France, and as such, the Scots sent troops to assist with the defence of a French garrison in Moulin, south of Paris in 1420. In the siege, the Scots were faced by a besieging force led by their own king, James I. Henry V had forced James to instruct the Scots to change sides, but the Scots refused to do so. Well, I mean, except for Aidan McGeady and James McCarthy, who, you know, both pretended to be Irish. They insisted that they could not obey James's orders while the Scottish king was still a prisoner of England. And so, when the English took the garrison, the Scots were excluded from the terms of surrender. The French were allowed to surrender as prisoners of the English king, whereas, whereas the Scots were hanged as traitors, justified by the fact that they continued to fight while knowing their king was in the besieging site. The old alliance was once again the gift that just kept on giving to the Scots. And when Henry V died in 1422, negotiations were resumed for the release of James, a big part of which was his love affair with Joan Bufer. A marriage of the Scots king into the English royalty was seen by the English as a good way of breaking up or at least denting the old alliance between Scotland and France and creating a potential ally in Scotland. James's... Potential release was less welcomed by Murdoch Stewart, who, having assumed control of the kingdom on his father's death, the Duke of Albany, in 1420, now faced the prospect of losing power to James. Eventually, in August 1423, the General Council began negotiations, and in December 1423, the Treaty of London saw James's release for ten thousand marks a year over six years, which incidentally is also the standard Weatherspoon worker's contract. As well as 10,000 mercs over six years, the English wanted 21 Scottish hostages in a kind of ISIS style of negotiation. And so 21 Scottish nobles were sent to England as a surety for the payment of James's ransom. It was a bit like sending 21 Tim Henmans to get an Andy Murray back in return. You know, most most people considered it being worth it. In February 1424, James married Joan Beaufort in a lavish ceremony in London before heading north and assuming control of his kingdom in April 1424. James's overriding, consuming even, personal business was to wreak retribution on those who had blighted his early life. He was 30 years old and was a king in a hurry. James did not even wait until his coronation before he had Walter Stewart of Lennox arrested. Walter Stewart was the son of Murdoch Stewart, the second Duke of Albany, who now had to step aside as governor to allow James to begin his personal rule. Murdoch stepped aside with little fuss when James was released, but since James was still without an heir, it meant that the 60-year-old Murdoch Stuart was the heir presumptive. However, it was Murdoch's eldest son, Walter, who posed a far greater threat to James's authority. Walter had made no secret of his hostility towards the new king. Walter was sent, quite ironically, to the Bass Rock, the bleak outpost fortress in the Firth of Forth where James had been forced to hide out while waiting for passage to France as a child. Walter's father-in-law, the Earl of Lennox, was also arrested. Further punishment for Walter, you know, because if being locked in a bleak island prison wasn't bad enough, Walter now had to endure the even worse punishment of being locked up in there with his father-in-law. James had made quite the impact in his return and he had yet even to be coronated. James was coronated at Schoon on the 21st of May 1424. And despite his son being imprisoned by James in the Bass Rock, it was Murdoch Stuart, Duke of Albany, who placed the crown on James's head at his coronation. Immediately after his coronation, James called a parliament at Perth where a raft of legislation was passed, including forfeiture for rebelling against the crown, a tax on land and goods. James had uh, learnt a lot about the English tax system while in prison in England, and he would impose heavy taxation policies on the Scottish nobility throughout his reign. Uh, There were export duties and borough rents reserved for the crown, a closed season for salmon, and archery was encouraged as a hobby instead of football. Football was banned presumably after James had witnessed how shite as countrymen were at it. Archery was thought to be a more worthwhile sport pertinent to, defense, to the defence of the realm. Being good at football was no use if a man was called into battle, you know, like unless you're like Luis Suarez and you combine it with biting folk. James's law decreed that na man is to play at the football under pay of four pennies, which is a significant amount, you know, that's, uh, that's a week's wage. If you play for someone like Ross County. James waited until his second meeting of Parliament in the spring of 1425 before he made his his next move. Suddenly, on the ninth day of the Parliament, he had Murdoch, Duke of Albany, his wife Isabella and his younger son Alexander arrested before immediately dismissing the Parliament and instructing it to reassemble in Stirling in May for the trial of the Albany Stuarts. In protest of his family's treatment, the youngest of Murdoch's sons, James the Fat, well he was James the Thin before the lockdown started. Uh, he escaped to Lennox Lands, where he burned down the town of Dumbarton and seized the castle. Now, it may have been a well-intentioned protest, but James's actions had given James the I the justification he needed to bring charges of treason against the Albany Stuarts, and when the Parliament reconvened in May 1425, James headed up seven earls and 14 lesser nobles who sentenced the Albany Stuarts to death. On the 24th of May 1425, Walter Stuart was beheaded on the heading stone in front of Stirling Castle and the next day his father Murdoch, his father-in-law, the Earl of Lennox and his younger brother Alexander all suffered the same fate. James the Fat, he fled to Ireland and was always a potential looming threat to the throne but he never made any return. The executions were the first royal executions ordered in Scotland for over a century. The honeymoon period be- between James and his subjects was well and truly over. The nobles were dismayed by the vindictiveness of James and his treatment of the Albany church. This coupled with his excessive taxation policies, put James on a collision course with his nobles. Scotland's first university had been instilled in St Andrews during the regency of the Duke of Albany in 1413. And James I took, took a keen interest in the development of the university, even attending a few lectures. Although he only attended these lectures because, you know, he couldn't get the lectures at Oxford or Cambridge universities. Now James also set up the Committee of the Articles, this was a a parliamentary business committee, and as well as that he created a special court to consider complaints that remained unsettled in local courts. He ensured that every man, woman and child had the right to a free trial and access to legal aid. James I even got everyone's PPI back. But in the north, the usual disruptions remained. The highlands were once again running out of control. The lord of the isles, Alexander Macdonald, the son of Donald Macdonald, who had fought so hard at Harlow in 1411, was in open defiance of the king. James, having already taken great pleasure in dishing out royal authority to the Albany Stuarts and their supporters, felt that it was time to bring the northerners to heel as well. In 1428, James summoned Alexander and some of the other uncooperative chieftains to a parliament in Inverness where he broke faith and had them all arrested. Most were released after a few months in captivity, three were hanged, but James kept Alexander Macdonald in captivity. Now Alexander may have been locked up, but his authority in the north was unabashed and under increasing pressure from the clansmen, James I was forced to release him and in the spring of 1429, Alexander took his revenge by burning Inverness, the scene of the royal betrayal the year before. James, he had to be seen to be dealing with this insurrection and so to deal with the restlessness in the north, he visited the Baxter's factory and had Walker shortbread sticks some Union Jacks on their tins. He also mastered an army of 10,000 to put down the rebellion. James's forces surprised Alexander in Loch Arbor. Alexander then fled to Islay and when James launched an expedition to the Isles, He gave himself up. He gave up hope on the route from Lochaber to Eilie like many a tourist dealing with midges. Alexander was taken to Holyrood where he was forced to submit to the king in front of the high altar at Holyrood Abbey. And Alexander was then imprisoned for a second time and for a second time it wasn't to last. In October 1431, with the struggles in the north continuing amidst Alexander's continued imprisonment in Edinburgh, the parliament met with James wanting to raise taxes yet again to fund more Highland expeditions. But the Parliament refused to raise any more money, and James, feeling the stiffening of resistance against his rule, quickly released Alexander MacDonald once again. Those in power... Desperately, desperately wanted to imprison Alexander, but were forced time and again to release him instead. It was it was like the whole, it was basically like the, the 15th century's Alex Salmon trial. It was no surprise James did not get the support that he required. The nobles were becoming more and more resentful, and the October Parliament of 1431 would prove to be a turning point in the rule of James I. James was ruling through fear, not respect. The people resented his taxes, both direct and indirect, and they resented James's opulence and spending on on himself. James had spent a lot of time in the English royal court, and he had seen the opul- opulence and wealth of the English royal court, and he wanted the same for himself, and so James spent huge, sums of money on himself, amounts that the Scottish Crown had never seen before, like James for example, right, he'd buy dishwasher tablets and toilet rolls when they weren't on offer, he'd pay full price for a sofa and DFS, when he was in the train station he would pay to use the station toilets, instead of waiting until he got on the train. If he was out for a meal, he'd actually ask to see the wine list instead of just ordering the house wine. He'd fill up his royal carriage with super unleaded and when he built the jewel and the crown of his reign, the glittering Linlithgow Palace, he had the entire thing lit by Yankee candles. It was opulence, the likes of which Scotland had never seen before. James was modelling himself in the emerging Renaissance courts of continental Europe. He used money raised through taxes and led on his own ransom payments to fund a lavish royal court. And as well as trying to remodel the Scottish court as wealthy, cultured and palatial, James had dynastic considerations to think of. Joan had given him two daughters and then on the 16th of October 1430 she gave birth to twin boys, Alexander and James. Now Alexander died in infancy leaving James as the heir and the future James II. In the same year, James I managed to secure a marriage between his eldest daughter, Margaret, and Louis de Dauphin of France. This was quite the coup for James. Margaret and Louis married when she was 12 and he was 13. Now, Louis would turn out to be a spiteful and vindictive man. And Margaret, like her father, she was a brilliant poet who would communicate her angst through her poetry. Kind of like Adele releasing an album after a breakup, you know? At Margaret, she caused something of a scandal when she kissed the French poem Elaine Chatier while he slept, and she died shortly afterwards, lonely and miserable at the age of 20. James's other daughters were also gifted poets, and they married more successfully, marrying into prestigious royal families in Brittany and Germany. As James moved unknowingly towards the end of his reign, he had lost all of the glamour he may have once had at the beginning of his reign, and he was coming across as mean, fat, and vindictive. He had gone full Morrissey, basically. And as part of the marriage between Margaret and the French Dothwan, the old alliance had been renewed and James saw an opportunity to finally rid Scotland of the English completely. He wanted to take back Berwick and the Roxburgh castles which were still held by England and so On the 1st of August 1436, using a huge new cannon ordered from Flanders called the Lion, James began the siege of Roxburgh Castle, which turned into a complete and utter fiasco. The Scots army was rife with with division, and James, he was a poor military commander. And when the army got word that an English force was marching north to relieve the castle, the siege was abandoned and the army disbanded. The farcical attempt at taking back Roxburgh Castle was yet another dent of James's royal prestige and when James carried out another grab on the privileges of the Scottish nobles in a meeting of the General Council on October 1436 it would prove to be the final straw for some of the Scottish nobility. James preferred St Johnston modern day Perth as his capital to Edinburgh. For the winter of 1436 he stayed at the Blackfriars Priory in Perth with his court lodged amongst the town. Now there was no castle in Perth. The wooden castle that had existed there throughout the wars of independence had burnt down and with no castle or palace James was leaving himself vulnerable to attack. The Priory it was only protected by a deep ditch that had been dug in front of it and with no castle or palace in Perth to this day that ditch remains the town's most popular tourist attraction. And for the Christmas of 1436, James played tennis, he read romances and listened to music, spending the holidays in much the same way your auntie Lynn does. All the while, a group of hardened conspirators were plotting his murder. The conspirators were headed up by Sir Robert Graham, who was the nephew of one of the Scottish nobles, Melise Graham, Earl of Strathairn, who had been sent into English captivity as part of James's ransom treaty. The other ringleader was Robert Stewart, the grandson and heir of Walter Stuart, Earl of Athol, the youngest brother of Robert III and James's uncle. Robert Stuart was James I's chamberlain and close confidant. And while the king and queen were preparing for bed on the 21st of February 1437, Robert Stewart laid planks across the ditch and unbarred all the doors. Then, just after midnight, the conspirators, led by Robert Graham, broke into the house. Now, hearing a commotion, James suspected something was afoot. And the windows had all been barred, so what he did was he lifted up a floorboard and he escaped into a drain which led from his bedchamber to an outlet in the wall by the tennis court. Now, unfortunately, James had had the drain blocked to stop tennis balls escaping from the tennis court up the drain. It meant that James's drains were better protected than the drains at Shawshank, but it also meant that James would be the only Scotsman whom tennis would be more damaging to his body than Sarandi Murray. Around 10 conspirators broke into the bedchamber. They ransacked the house looking for the king before returning to the bedchamber, tearing up the floorboards and discovering James's hiding place. Sir Robert Graham climbed into the drain and delivered the fatal blow before the rest piled in. The king suffered 16 stab wounds in total. Now, Joan, she'd been wounded in the attack. Bleeding and scantily dressed, she managed to escape the priory with the six-year-old James II to Edinburgh Castle. Now, the conspirators had presumably meant to kill the Queen as well, but they didn't pursue her. Instead, they put as much distance between them and the murder as news of James's demise reached the town. But by not killing the Queen, they had ultimately, ultimately resigned themselves to their own fate. From Edinburgh Castle, Jones sent loyal adherents to hunt down the conspirators, and bring them to justice. Robert Stewart was given a particularly brutal execution, even by medieval standards. He was broken at the wheel um, at Edinburgh's Mercat Cross. First, he was hoisted from a crane, dropped and jolted, just before his body hit the ground, in a kind of medieval bungee jump that dislocated most of his joints. So actually, in that respect, it was more like the waltzers at the Black Isle show, I suppose. He was then stripped naked, tied to a hurdle and dragged down the high street in the stag do part of his execution before being propped up against the Mercat cross. His insides cut out and burnt in front of his eyes and every time he passed out he was doused with cold water to retrieve him. And throughout he was made to wear a red hot crown with the inscription... King of all traitors, and when it fused with his skull, it was ripped off of his head. Which will be the next thing that we're subjected to by hipsters. You know, we'll have kids with sleeve tattoos and "fuck the police" fused on their foreheads. And the coup d'état—they gave Robert Stewart a good old boot in the balls before they beheaded him, sticking his head on a pike on top and placing it on top of the toll booth prison. In Edinburgh. His limbs were hacked off and sent to Stirling, Perth, Dundee, and Aberdeen, where they were then deep fat fried and served in the local chip shops. And despite having no head and no limbs, Robert Stewart still went on to have another 14 children because they may have given Rod Stewart the chop, but there is one thing that Rod would always, always resist, and that is the snip, ladies and gentlemen. And so, on the 25th of March, 1437, James II was crowned at Holyrood. Schoon was t- it was deemed too dangerous at this time as it was close to Athol lands where the conspiracy had originated. And the day after James II's coronation, Walter, the Earl of Athol, was taken from the Tollbooth prison and beheaded. Uh, he was at least spared the brutality of his grandson, Robert Stewart's execution and torture. And once again, Scotland was left with a child monarch, the six-year-old, James the Second. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the first of the Montebank series that you've listened to, then check out some of the other episodes. If you like this one, you'll like the other ones. It's the same shite, do you know what I mean? Uh, you can contribute to the series by going on to Buy Me a Coffee dot com and basically contributing the the price of a cup of coffee it can be as little as two quid or if you want you become a a patron of the podcast at patreon.com where you can buy me the the price of a cup of coffee every month again it can be as little as two pound it can be as little or as much as you want it um it's all massively massively appreciated i'm on there at montebank history of scotland um, and what I try to do is I try and raise enough money each week so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. Um, so if you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey, all you need to do is leave a comment, send me a DM, uh, send me an email or whatever, and I pick someone at randomly. Give me a wee follow on social media at Montebank Tours. And what I try to do is each week I try and match what I've been talking about on the podcast with a, a malt whiskey from Scotland. And today I'm going to match today's podcast, the podcast about James the First, with Talisker, which is the only uh, distillery on the Isle of Skye. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I've I've never really been able to decide whether I actually like Talisker or not. It is an incredibly flavoursome dram, it's got smokiness, it's got peatiness it's got sweetness, it's got spiciness there's so much going on in a glass and I've just not really been able to get my head round it I still can't decide whether I actually enjoy it or not, I'm going to sky next weekend or at least that's the plan so maybe I'll uh, maybe that'll be the the kind of final decision as to whether it's a, a green or a red light it also kind of fits quite nicely because the it was the McCaskill brothers who um, who set up the distillery in 1830, Hugh and Kenneth McCaskill. And they had a bit of a reputation on the island for driving tenant farmers off of their land in the clearances so that they could breed sheep. So again, kind of fits with James first because there is these kind of quite evil men who drove people off of the island Um but they also managed to create something absolutely incredible and lasting as well, which is probably in keeping with James the First. So there you go. If you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Talisker, then uh, then you know what to do. Give me a wee follow on social media, at Montebank Tours. Leave me a DM. Uh, send me an email, whatever. Guys, thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please give it a rate. Tell your pals. Uh, give it a wee review. Do all the things that people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. Once again, give me a wee follow on social media as well at Montebank Tours. You'll get me on Instagram and Facebook and all that sort of stuff. And I hope to see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening. Cheerio now. Bye bye.